Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Friday morning, the 16th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. American drivers are being warned about the danger of texting and driving. Police in Massachusetts released a video which shows a car crashing into a pole. The impact flipped the car over and caused the pole to fall to the ground. The woman who crashed into the pole was not seriously hurt, but she did get a ticket for texting and driving. Police say the video is a warning to drivers to stay alert, adding it is not worth your life or the life of another person. Less than 24 hours after releasing this video, another driver who police say was also distracted crashed into the same pole at the exact same spot. The warnings police say are to remind everyone about the serious outcomes uh, that can result from texting, being distracted by any other means or impairment from drugs or alcohol. And whether you're near Boston or Mallow in County Cork, the dangers facing motorists are identical. Yesterday, Gardaí appealed for better driver behaviour. Road deaths have increased by six this year when compared to figures for the same period last year. Up to the 14th of August, 52 drivers, 10 passengers, 15 pedestrians, 10 motorcyclists and 6 cyclists have been killed on Irish roads a total of 93 lives. Yesterday uh, Superintendent Edmund Golden of the National Roads Policing Bureau was speaking at a checkpoint on the N20 near Mallow and he said that the use of mobile phones while driving is killer behaviour. Let's talk about this with Conor Faulkner, Director of Consumer Affairs with AA Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Conor, and thanks for joining us. And I think uh, that's a message that thus far has been lost on a lot of people. 
Well, I mean, we're not unique in Ireland. Uh, people do it around the world, but we are pretty bad. This uh, terrible modern habit of being unable to leave the phone alone, even while driving. Um, a little Google will show anybody that sort of footage that uh, that you were talking about. This is a piece that uh, American police released uh, yesterday and went viral all over the world. And you can see that this car is sort of proceeding in a normal way in traffic, moving along quite smoothly. And then the road bends gently, but the driver doesn't. She goes straight off the road and hits a telegraph pole, flipping the car. Car. And, you know, an extraordinary collision. Not unusual. In fact, about three years or so ago, we had footage ourselves from one of our, we've some, uh, AA Roadwatch has some traffic cameras, and there's one in, in Kimmage in Dublin. And we got a piece of footage that was very similar. I mean, a car just tootling down the road at a reasonable speed uh, and just drives, you know, straight into a car that's on the roadside and, and flips. Um, and you you suspect, I mean, I, I couldn't say with certainty, but it seems highly, highly, highly likely that what the driver was doing was playing with the mobile phone. It's an incredible habit that we have. And that's Everybody what makes knows. it killer behaviour, uh, well, yeah. because, because it's so distracting. But what is it about using the phone that is so distracting? Because we're distracted by so many things when we're driving anyway, I suppose. Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, firstly, every driver knows you shouldn't do it. I mean, there's nobody who's, you know, you know, thinks it's unreasonable. If somebody gets penalty points for mobile phone use, all they can do is kind of face palm, you know, because nobody's going to have any sympathy for them. But there's a couple of different types of phone use. The one that is, you know, directly, immediately illegal, do not pass go, you're getting penalty points straight away, is if you've got a connected device in one hand and the steering wheel in the other. And it doesn't have to be a phone. You know, it could be, I don't know, a, a, a pad or whatever else. Any connected device, if it's in your hand uh, while you're driving the car, that's an offence. Now, there are, of course, also hands-free phones. You can receive a telephone call hands-free. But even at that, I mean, that's, that's not necessarily illegal if your driving behaviour is okay, but we encourage people not to do it. And look, if if you are stuck in traffic, I mean, there was there's terrible traffic jam between you and me this morning. The the M1 coming down from from Donna Bay to Dublin Port was jammers this morning. If you've got somebody who's you know you're stuck in traffic, the car isn't moving, the telephone rings, and you can see that it's uh, the child's school, for example. Realistically, that phone call is going to be answered. But what we would say to people is keep it hands free, keep the conversation to a minimum do not get involved mm. in a, a a deep or detailed conversation because we know that it's distracting to do but actually the bigger problem is not the hands-free phone call in that circumstance it's people picking up the device and fiddling with it mm. uh, you know I'm, I'm stuck in traffic car hasn't moved in five minutes i pick up the mobile phone and you know i'm scrolling through twitter or whatever it is and then before you know it i'm looking at a hilarious cat video the car in front has moved on and that's and it you can't take your eyes back. off the cat video yeah. is it yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah because we have nothing about the damn thing so mm. we really i mean mm. phones are great as mm. an emergency response thing you know calling help when you need it calling the aa breakdown when you need it without having to go and find a phone they're brilliant technology mm. fantastic have phones in cars but our dysfunctional habit of using them constantly whenever you have the slightest punctuation mm. mark in your day car stopped in traffic reach for the phone mm. it, it, it's it's a dysfunctional behavior oh and it, it's so commonplace now that people don't take off on a, a green light uh, and when you see the person in the car you'll realize their head is down they're looking at the phone correct and mm. or, uh, you're out on the open road um you know driving across the country whatever it is and the car in front of you slows down bizarrely, weaves across the lanes. You, you think to yourself, is that driver drunk? Mm. And then, you know, he straightens up and starts driving properly. You can be certain 
that it was fiddling with the mobile phone. So it's a strange, bizarre habit. Now, the guards do catch people, but, you know, the numbers in, mm. in, in relative... They, they, like, they've caught 30,000 people, near, more than that, nearly 31,000 people so far this year. Um, and every single one of those people um, just... You know, you deserve your penalty points. I'm sorry, don't have much sympathy. You're just going to have to take your penalty points. And is it, be, is it because people allow themselves to get drawn in by whatever it is that's on their phone rather than trying to multitask? Because, I mean, we've spoken many times about the dangers of multitasking, but some people will tell you they can do it quite easily. They can be smoking a cigarette when they're driving, uh, eating a bag of chips and drinking a, a cup of coffee, let's say, at the same time as changing a CD and they're probably scolding the children and admiring some good-looking person walking by them. Yeah, all of those things. And, and all of those things are said before in terms of, you know, why have we got a specific law about mobile phones? There's two things on that. Firstly, there is no limit to the number of stupid things that a driver might choose to do in the car, more than you could possibly list in law. Um, but there's a catch-all clause in the Road mm. Traffic Act that always makes it an offence to drive a vehicle without reasonable care and consideration. So if you're driving without reasonable care you can be done for careless driving. And that covers, we don't mention cups of coffee in the Road Traffic Act, but if you're trying to go round a roundabout with a cup of coffee held between your legs, mm. um, you know, that, that you can be prosecuted for that in theory. Uh, mobile phones, though, are different. They're so prevalent, they're so common that they required specific law. The other thing is that there are now studies beyond count that have been done right around the world on the way in which mobile phones cause distraction and that's interesting you know for the if, if you google a bit of it for, for the amateur psychology it's quite fascinating yeah. it's to do with something called cognitive impairment so if you're engaged in a mo- in a phone call even if you're not uh, in a car the, the human being is evolved to communicate face to face so when you're talking to somebody your brain expects to see somebody to see their facial expressions and gestures if you can't the brain compensates and that distracts you from the here and now. Mm. So you might find somebody, say your phone rings when you're at home and you're chatting away to somebody for two minutes and then you hang up the phone and you say, where the hell did I put my cup of tea? What yeah, did I do yeah. with it? Mm. And you have to retrace your steps to find mm. where you've left it because mm. your brain wasn't in the here and now. Part of your brain is occupied compensating for the fact that you can't see the other person. So you are, it's called cognitive impairment and you're significantly distracted. Okay. The very same thing happens when you're driving. People will tell you, you take a mobile phone call and you're engaged in a mobile phone conversation and suddenly realize that you, I, I'm following my normal route mm. to work. I'm halfway into the office. Jesus, I only meant to go out and get a pint of milk. What am I doing? <laughs> okay. and, and, and it's because you're distracted. So where's the logic in saying that it's okay to take a, a call, legally okay at least, hands-free, uh, whilst uh, it's illegal when you're holding the device? Well, it, 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 it's certainly better not to take the call at all. Um, but holding the device in one hand and the steering wheel in the other, I mean, that's just inexcusable. It doesn't, doesn't matter if it is the child school. Mm. You can't do that. And that's you know, rightly, explicitly illegal. The issue with hands-free is that it can be done properly, it can be done in reasonable safety, in the same way that you can have a cup of coffee in your car and be reasonably safe with it. There's also a reality check here, right? You, you, know, you can't uninvent the technology. If you've got businesses out on the road, let's say I have, I have mm. a sales rep and he leaves my office here in Dublin and he's heading to Cork, mm. um, you can't ask him to turn the phone off for the whole way. I might find out in five minutes that you know, the trip is cancelled. I'm not going to have to wait three hours till he gets to Cork and checks in. But he still but, faces the same danger, doesn't he, of that well, cognitive yeah, but impairment? Hands-free, mm. hands-free, you can control a call much better in terms, in terms of it doesn't compromise your physical. But we also do advise people, even hands-free, mm. we advise people not to do calls. And we advise employers 
not to make phone calls to staff who are on the road. Mm. I have no business ringing that guy in one hour's time and expecting to talk to him when I know he's on the road to Cork. Mm. I shouldn't put him in that position. But we also know that, um, look, if, if you must, if, if you keep a mobile phone call very strict and to the point, you could get a phone call that says, um, uh, we're out of tea bags, will you yeah. pick them up on the way home? That's fine. If you get a phone call that says, where did I leave the spare car keys? And you're saying, well, they're in the second drawer. No, not that drawer. You know, the one underneath yep. that that mm-hmm. has the thing. And as you're saying that, your brain is picturing the conversation. That you Maybe so. But it, if you're driving safely, you're not guilty of dangerous driving and therefore you're not breaking the law. In fact, so, uh, the so, truth is you're not breaking correct. the law unless you're holding the device. You can Cor- text. Correct. Well, you you're not go- necessarily breaking the law, Michael. But remember, it's, mm. always, it's always possible to be done for careless driving. Yes. So if I'm, if I'm on a hands-free mobile mm. phone call, for example, the phone call itself isn't necessarily an offence. Mm. Um, but if my driving is poor, I, I can be done for but that. But if your driving isn't poor, you won't be done. In, in the same way that if you're driving isn't per uh, there's no law against texting hands free is there well, there is, yes, because the, te- the mobile phone is a connected device. We, we actually refined Irish law a couple of years ago mm. and made it more, more all-encompassing. It's actually a good legislative change, because initially the law mentioned a mobile phone. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, there are devices that people have that aren't mobile phones. Okay. Uh, you could have, it could be your sat-nav, it could be a tablet, mm. it could be a theory, you could be watching a well, what about tablet. What about WhatsApp? Same thing. It's a connected mm. device. Okay. So if it's a connected device, mm. then it's an offence to use it uh, while driving a car, unless it's hands-free and plumbed in. And, and, and you know, the, I think that's a good law. Oh, well, that's I, what I mean. If, if you're hands-free. Yeah. It's oh, not... If you're hands-free, can you use WhatsApp? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, you the can, an- and you can text and you can okay. use Facebook and you can change your music and so yeah, on. Yeah, in theory, in theory. But mm. but you have to be careful about how you actually draft law. Because mm. as I say, there's a, underlying all of these explicit provisions, underlying it all, there's the general clause in the Road mm. Traffic Act. It is always an offence to drive a car without due care and attention. Mm. And you can be prosecuted for that. And, and, and that's good law. That's law that works. And it covers all of those behaviours that you couldn't list individually, including... You know, your mm-hmm. WhatsApp and what's not. Yeah. But when it comes to the mobile phone itself, it's such a ubiquitous technology. Mm-hmm. These things are everywhere. Yeah. They require specific mention in okay. law. Okay, but if, 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 if it's built into a modern car or if it's up yeah. on a, a cradle in an older car... Yeah. You can do whatever you want on the phone. Well, I wouldn't phrase it that way. You're, you're right in saying that it's not explicitly an offence mm. to use the device itself. But remember the catch-all. It's always an offence to drive without due care mm. and attention. So it, it, no matter what's distracting you, you could be... And look, there are... It, it, the, the old mm. cliché, the guy shaving or the woman putting... Oh, I know, but those people will tell you they're not on a suicide mission and they wouldn't do it if they thought it was dangerous. Well, their, their opinion as to what's dangerous or not yeah. is not what decides the law. No, but uh, it's, uh, it's what decides their behaviour because they're making yeah, their own personal decisions. Yeah. You're right. Mm-hmm. Be, be, if, people, if people don't perceive a behaviour to be dangerous, then, then you know, they, will, they will act in that manner. Okay, so and that brings us to the UK. Because of this, they're mm-hmm. talking about banning the use of hands-free mobile phones. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say that it gives a, a misleading impression that it, it's safe to drive and use the phone, whether you're on a call or texting yeah. or using it for music or whatever, hands-free. I understand the rationale behind that, and the UK, generally speaking, are very good on road safety. They've been world leaders, and you know, so I, I wouldn't knock the Brits. And I understand the logic of what's being said there. However, 
everything you do in law has to be practical. There's no point writing down laws that are utterly unenforceable. And here's what I'm afraid that's utterly unenforceable. You cannot uninvent the technology. It just won't work. And you should also remember that there is a place for responsible phone use. We, we, we do well over 100,000 car breakdowns a year. They're all coming into us now by phone and by app. Um, so, you know, gone are the days where if your car broke down, you had to, you know, had to find a phone to use. Everybody uses them automatically. People ring the emergency services. It's, it's a life-saving mm. technology. People are able to go out and have, you know, a meal at the local restaurant because the babysitter can get them at any time. Mobile phones are brilliant. Um, and you're never going to uninvent that convenience. And, you know, let's say we made a, a law that said if you're driving a car, your mobile phone must be switched off and put in the boot. Um, you know, good mm. luck with that. It's ink on paper. You absolutely are not going to be able to enforce that law. You can forget about it. And then you wind up doing what we've done in Ireland before. You write a law onto your statute book that looks good and sounds good and makes no difference whatsoever on the road because it's totally unenforceable. And I, I would be against, as I say, trying to uninvent the technology using the law and, and putting stuff on your statute books that may make you feel good um, you know, when you beat your breast and say, I care mm. about road safety, but actually on the road, when the guards are enforcing, it's just unworkable. And, and I, I would see a total ban on, the, on, on having a phone in a car as falling into that category. OK. Uh, are you concerned, as uh, the guards are, at uh, the increase in uh, the amount of uh, fatalities on the roads? Obviously, it's yeah. not uh, something that anybody would take lightly and any increase is bad, uh, but it is a, a marginal increase. And I suppose uh, these figures do fluctuate from time to time. Yeah, I, I think that's a sensible way to frame the, the, uh, the conversation. You're right about that. Look, 93 people have died. Obviously, that is disastrous. I mean, that is a terrible, terrible number. If we step back a little bit, though, uh, Irish road safety has been very good over the last 15, 20 years. Uh, I mean, last year, 149 people were killed on Irish roads. Dreadful on one hand. Yep but actually the safest year we've ever had. Mm. I mean, when I first started getting involved in road safety 20-odd years ago, uh, at that stage there were over 450 people mm. being killed on the roads every year. So it's down by two-thirds in 20 years. We've made mm. amazing progress. No, I think and if you go back to the 1970s, it was in excess of 500, wasn't it? Well, it, yeah, yeah. it actually mm. topped out in the early yeah. 1970s when mm. it was over 650. I think the right, very, yeah. very top yeah. year was 670-odd. Yeah. And at that stage, we had a third of the amount of cars doing mm. a third of the amount of mileage. Probably and nobody it, doing over 40 miles an hour, for that matter. Well, I know, but I mean, mm. seatbelt use mm. was... I mean, the yeah. technology was... Drink poor, driving. The, 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 and, and, and we had, as a society... Mm. Um, we, we just had not started down the journey. We were, we were ridiculously tolerant of drinking and driving and of speeding. Um, you know, seatbelts were, were, were optional and unused. Mm. I, I had a conversation at one stage with a, a, an A&E consultant at a conference somewhere, and he was mm. an older guy, but he was saying that in his youth, when he was a young emergency doctor, quite a common injury to present in car mm. crashes was loss of both eyes yeah. to flying glass. Hideous to think uh, of. Oh, oh, Nowadays, yeah, they've but, laminated glass yeah, and shatterproof, yeah. and the technology is yeah. much better. The passive safety systems are far, far better. The roads are better. Yeah. The behaviour is better. Well, there were many cars that didn't have seatbelts, certainly not yeah, in the back. Right. Uh, and I, yeah. I, I remember a time uh, that uh, there were so many people, kids, sitting on the laps of the adults in the back seat right. that somebody had to get in the boot. 
Yeah, that's right. And we yeah. all did it. I mean, we, yep. we had, we had, there were three of us in my, well, we had a sister who came along 12 <laughs> years later, but we grew up as, as a bunch of three. Mm. And I remember competing with the brothers for, you know, what yeah. we thought was the best position, which was in the middle in the back. So you can lean forward, you're practically in the front, put an elbow on, on dad's seat <laughs> and an elbow on mum's mm. seat and, and join the chat. And you know, the emergency services call that the launch position. That okay. is yeah. utterly lethal. That's, that'll kill a child at 30 miles per hour. Yeah. And of course, nowadays, we just don't do that anymore. Uh, um, in fact, you know, you ask a young mum these days, and they're the opposite. Mm-hmm. They, they'll, they'll spend a fortune on the baby seat. Mm-hmm. Had a second-hand baby seat here only used, no, no, don't want that. Give me the brand mm-hmm. new one. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're fanatical and, about and it. And the technology and itself, the cars, the brakes, the airbags, all that sort of stuff. All airbags, well. crumple yeah, zones, yeah, 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 seatbelt yeah, yeah, pretensioners, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, anti-lock braking mm-hmm. systems, tyre technology. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's just an order of magnitude. Uh, safer than it was before. And look, so it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh, um, it, 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 when you think about it, we got from, the, the, the pace of the technology is phenomenal. It's, it's 50 years now since the moonshot. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you consider when the moonshot occurred, you know, they were only 50 years past the Wright brothers. So, you know, the, the pace yeah. of technological mm-hmm. change is mm-hmm. astonishing. And your modern car now, I mean, we're not far off at the stage where the car will drive itself, well, literally it, yeah, drive yeah, itself. Yeah. And you'll be able to take a phone call comfortably. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've joked before, that's, that's what <laughs> Kerry politicians should be lobbying for, permission to drink and drive. They should be saying, telling Google, come in here yeah. with the automatic car. And, and I think that's the way the technology will go. So we will eventually reach a stage where we will look on 150 road deaths a year as uh, ridiculously yeah. barbaric, you know, because there's under 10 and we want to get it to zero. We will eventually get there. At the moment, you know, meanwhile, back in 2019, 93 deaths year to date. It's six more than last year, as we're tracking. Um, and, you know, obviously that's not good, uh, but it's actually only two more car crashes that have occurred. Okay. So you begin, as I think you were saying at the start, you, you get into the statistics of small yeah. numbers. Um, when, when the figures are that low, you know, one incident can look like a trend and you can deceive yourself in terms of how you go about it. But we, we are still doing some of the right things. Levels of guard enforcement are actually up this year, which is good. We've been arguing for that. We need to keep that going. Continued enhanced guard of presence, single most important countermeasure to all of the things that cause people to die. And then when we're talking about guard uh, presence, it doesn't just mean... Um, you know, I, Tuesday lunchtime in the middle of the village, yeah. because you know, nice though that might be, you're much more likely to prevent a death if you're in the car park of a pub at midnight, yeah. or if you're in the vicinity of the nightclub at two o'clock in the morning. You want to see guards there, um, and you know that's still a little imperfect. I don't think they're doing quite enough, but guard enforcement levels are up on last year, which is a good thing. And then in terms of of the overall road death figure. I, I think, you know, we would concentrate on enforcement, concentrate on the safety messaging, etc. And, and as we head into autumn and winter, uh, you know, a concerted effort to keep everybody safe. And, and, and even if we got to the year end and it was still six worse than last year, OK, that would be disappointing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it would also be the second safest year yeah, in our record. modern history. Okay. So, you know, a bit of context there. Some, some things are being done well. OK, Connor, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much, though, as always, for joining us today. Connor Faulkner, Director of Consumer Affairs, with AA Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. And now let's talk about uh, the ongoing boil water notice uh, for people who are on uh, the Talonstown supply. We're joined uh, by local Fianna Fáil councillor John Sheridan. A very good morning to you and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, you've been complaining about the lack of information and uh, I don't think there's any disputing that there has been a lack of information but you've also been suggesting that people were getting sick in the run-up to this notice being issued. Yeah, uh, thanks Michael. 
Michael, good morning. Um, a lot of information has um, come, come about in the last few weeks, I suppose, from people talking uh, locally. Uh, people have contacted me directly about individual uh, cases and indeed uh, on social media as well. Um, I suppose in one particular case I'm aware of a child was actually hospitalised uh, and the family believe it's uh, as a result of drinking uh, water from the Talonstown water supply. So I suppose there is uh, is concerns. I note uh, from a statement from Irish Water, they've advised if anyone has any health concerns to contact a GP mm. and seek uh, se- seek medical advice. But I suppose it is very concerning for a public water supply um, that this would actually be the case and um, that people would uh, unassumingly go be consuming mm. water and then end up and, uh, having health. And, and what symptoms were what was this child uh, displaying? Um, I, I think there's generally general sickness. Those what the family mm. divulged to me, but luckily they were t- hospitalised in Temple Street. Um, vomit. And, and, and diarrhea as well, yeah. and and kept in uh, hospitalised. Uh, well, yeah, well, actually hospitalised for a number of days. Yes. Okay, so very so, serious. Uh, uh, and you say you've heard from uh, other people who are uh, feeling uh, unwell. Other other individual cases of people, and I mm. suppose people who anecdotally reported when they joined the dots together of a public yep. water or boil mm. water notice being put in place. My tummy was off. Exactly, yeah, or yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Or, or random mm. sickness, or, or no no appetite. Yeah. Um, mm. So I suppose, and and what uh, age, what age was that child? Uh, seven. Okay. Seven year old. Very so young suppose, child. Uh, you know, w- w- when you think of maybe it might be a toddler, but no, mm. a seven year old would be fairly robust and uh, and, and and sturdy. Um, and I think it really does show a concern as to what happened uh, as of now um, we're over two weeks since the boil water notice was mm. put in place and we still have had no information as to what the actual source mm. of the concern was all we know was that uh, tests were failed uh, when tests were completed at the treatment plant and that's obviously uh, a huge concern Michael OK well we did hear from Irish Water which uh, told us uh, that uh, they uh, as a precaution uh, issued uh, the, treatment, the treatment process uh, which impacted on the disinfection process at the water treatment plant uh, that when they uh, they said the BWN what's the BWN? The boil water notice. The boil water was put in place as a precaution because the disinfection process ha- had uh, yeah. failed. And, uh, uh, this is a statement that has literally just been handed to me so apologies uh, for getting my head around it but they had said something uh, similar to that to us on the telephone before when we asked for an okay. interview when we asked mm. uh, for a statement uh, because the notice was issued without any clarification. N- no and, and uh, it was issued on the 30th of July and uh, almost a carbon copy was issued again last last Friday mm. and as it was Michael when um, when you start joining the dots it was actually the 2nd of July mm. uh, and notice was issued that a flushing programme was being done of the same mm. uh, system and um, I, I suppose the the uh, concern with that was was that connected and I suppose that's mm. the question that I, I, I have put to, to Irish Water actually asking What that. have they said to you? Hmm. Literally nothing. All I've got okay. is standard replies back, yep. giving me an issue mm. number. Um, mm. I've even gone to the, the extent of uh, tweeting them directly to mm. at least publicly uh, look for an answer. In fairness to some of the individual staff and Louth County Council, they've mm. come back to me with what they knew of it. But ultimately, Irish Water themselves have only uh, literally carbon copied back uh, the uh, the official boil water. It notice. really is poor communication, isn't it? Because poor they're not communicating with public <coughs> representatives. Uh, Declan Brannock, uh, the TD exactly. for the area, told us he couldn't get a, a response from Irish Water and was hearing from council officials. Irish Water have issued those standard notices to the media. They have declined our requests to be interviewed on this yes. on a, a number of occasions. And uh, this morning, uh, they've issued us with this lengthy statement, which uh, tells us again that they were concerned about the disinfection mm. process, which led to the boil water notice. Mm. And they're also suggesting to people that if they have concerns about their, her- their health, they should contact their GP. Uh, and if the GP feels that it was as a result mm. of con- 
contaminated water that they felt unwell, that that would be reported and then investigated. And, and, and obviously a public health uh, concern will be raised. And I think, Michael, it's obvious to say it, it's basic communications. Mm. In the absence of any information, rumours start, mm. and that's exactly uh, what has happened. And I think there is a real um, frustration there, mm. because uh, and even I as a public representative... Well, what have people been drinking? Um, well, uh, well, having to uh, buy mm. bottled water. Um, yeah, but, which but, is a, but what were people drinking before the boil water notice? Oh, that led it, that it, child it, to being it, hospitalised, exactly. that led people to being sick, that led people to yeah. losing their appetite, having diarrhoea and yeah. so on. Was it E. coli in the water? Were they drinking sewage? And, uh, well, exactly that. And I suppose the River mm. Glide uh, stretches over 50 kilometres. So there's a mm. lot of potential sources that could have been along 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 that uh, river. Mm. And, even and, and maybe that's why Irish water don't want to talk to us. Perhaps. But I suppose we look at lessons that over in Roscommon mm. uh, a number of years ago, those boil water notices in place for over 20 months. And that's mm. obviously a huge um, a, a huge thing that people would, would, would be very concerned about. And I think it, it, when we look at maybe vulnerable people and particularly older people maybe in receipt of uh, of, of care they've obviously had huge challenges mm. maybe trying to source uh, trying to source drinking water especially at the height of the, the summer a lot of school children who are at home as well and mm. I'm sure a lot of concern, parents are very worried about children go and consume in it um, yep. the extent of it I mean you're, you're not allowed to obviously drink it use mm. it for brushing your teeth uh, washing food well so if, it, fairly... if it's sewage you're uh, as well, well not to well of course, uh, of and, course. And, and I mean there was another problem in communicating mm. to this to people because when they became concerned mm. but we act for, first of all mm. we don't know when they came, mm. became concerned first of all and if they were to uh, agree to an interview mm. that would be one question and we'd be asking them when do they come, become concerned first of all mm. and when did they issue the notice uh, and they'd be interesting questions to and, get answers and, and to. That, and that particular date that I'm putting out there, and I'm open to contradiction mm. on it, is the 2nd of July, yeah. uh, because that's when a notice was issued that flushing of the system was to take place at that D- stage. But the notice was issued to media. Mm. Uh, there was no contact with residents. Um, I believe there was a letter from the HSE was issued a few days after. A few the, days yeah, after, yeah, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, 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 I mean, if people weren't reading the papers or oh, on exactly. social media or listening to LMFM, they could have continued yeah. to drink what was possibly sewage. It could, it, it Maybe could it wasn't, be. but we and, don't know, but uh, they're not here to tell us. And, and uh, as I say, in the absence of mm. information, we get rumours. And this was a real test of the co- public's confidence in Irish water. Mm. Um, I think there's a lot of other examples uh, from over the months of public reps trying to sort out issues, uh, whether it's uh, water supply into individual houses mm. and, again, getting stonewall replies or not getting not getting replies at all. They um, can't tell us or won't tell us when they expect uh, the water no, supply to be the, restored. The, the, the most recent date, again, this flushing of the mm. System. We got an, an announcement two days ago that that's to continue until the 30th of August. And when I queried that, um, the response I had was that it was the flushing was a coordinated response mm. uh, to the boil water notice being in place. But mm. I suppose to, to, to any lay person, that's you know th- th- that doesn't necessarily give any reassurances. And of course, uh, as uh, the suppliers of the mm. public water system, uh, they would have a duty of care to the consumers, the people well, who. Yes, I mean water is the most basic need uh, that that, mm. that, that, would, that we all uh, we all need, especially public water, um, and we like to have uh, is, trust and faith in, is there in our any public system, water. Is there any system of testing that duty of care? Um, well, I, I would hope that there's routine tests uh, always ongoing on, on all within water Irish stuff. water, though. Oh, but, okay. it, but I mean, do we know when they became concerned, or when they should have become mm, concerned, no. and when they issued the notice, and how they went about issuing the notice, and no, so on? We, we don't know that. One thing we do know, Michael, is that the Environmental Protection Agency mm. are also involved at this moment in time. That was cited in some of the emails, mm. which is obviously there. And I'll be honest, I don't know if that's a routine, uh, a routine thing, or if that's only just mm. in, in in this case. It's also to note as well, Michael, transparency costs less 
than hospital bills ultimately mm. Uh, mm. and uh, I think when there is an absence of, of information and communication um, it, it really does cause people fear and concern mm. Final, uh, and, uh, and, and that does seem like a, a firefighting approach that they've mm. taken in response to this you've issued this statement mm. saying that people were sick and a child was mm. hospitalised and then mm. Irish Water respond by saying oh well if people have complaints we'd like to hear about them two and a half weeks on rather than saying the water was contaminated Mm. if people Mm. felt unwell please let us know and and this is how you do it yeah and i I would have thought michael in any individual tests Mm. that it would be very clear as to what what substance ultimately was in the water water. Mm -hmm. i was based on the statement this morning where they mentioned about um, the the disinfection process, mm. that would be a separate issue, which would almost point to an internal Irish water issue if they mm. simply weren't disinfecting correctly. But mm. that, even in and of itself, is a concern. That a pump uh, or something uh, failed. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. that. Um, so, so it's, uh, the one other point I would, I would make, Michael, is is about having a register of vulnerable people in community. I know ESB mm. networks have it in the case of any weather alerts or anything like that. But it would do no harm for yeah. both older people mm. and people with disabilities to have register of vulnerable yeah. people so that in these cases that you know mm. water could be uh, uh, could be got to those people the final one I know mm. my colleague Declan Murdoch asked as well about getting water tankers mm. uh, but the response on that was uh, that that water would need to be boiled in and of itself anyway so mm, that okay. would be a futile mm. a futile thing uh, and to notify vulnerable people directly rather than hoping uh, they're on uh, Facebook uh, well that's that's exactly it's it, crazy and, stuff uh, it really is crazy stuff it's beggar's belief no you know that, that, that there's dangerous water coming out of your tap and they're hoping that you find out about it on Facebook or maybe you listen to the local exactly. radio maybe the local radio station will mention it exactly, you exactly. Know, so, I, I mean they sent us in a press release we decided to mention mm-hmm. it uh, they did nothing uh, constructively to make sure that they got that information to people I, I think that's very fair to say Michael alright we'll yeah. leave it there for the moment okay. thank you indeed so. for joining us here on the programme this morning Fianna Fáil Councillor John Sheridan Michael Reed on LMFM. The price of a packet of cigarettes should increase to €20 over the course of uh, the next six years. Let's hear why Chris Macy, Head of Advocacy with the Irish Heart Foundation, is on the line. And a very good morning to you, Chris, and uh, thanks for joining us here on the programme. Good morning, Michael. Uh, €20, it's a a nice round figure. Uh, Is uh, that €20 in today's money, or or, uh, are you taking into account inflation? No, we're, we're talking about €20 uh, euro a pack by 2025, which on a pro rata basis would uh, work out at, uh, around a, an increase each year up to 2025 of about €1.17. Every year? Every year up to 2025, yeah. They've, mm. they've been doing this in, in Australia actually more uh, vigorously. They've been putting up the price year on year by 12.5%. So by the end of next year, it'll be 22 or the equivalent of €22 euro for uh, a, a pack uh, there. And it's working. Um, uh, the um, the rate of, of smoking there among the adult population is down to 13%. It's 20% here. We've 800,000 uh, people are still um, uh, classed as, as current smokers. And we have this flagship government health policy of a tobacco-free Ireland by mm. 2025. And to achieve that, we've got to uh, reduce the number of smokers by around 100 thousand net every year uh, between now and then smoking is falling it's gone down by the numbers have gone down by 80,000 over mm. the last three years but we just have to ramp 
ramp it up. And the best way to do that is a, is a dual uh, strategy of, of significant uh, tobacco price increases, which we know work, and then much more help uh, to, uh, for smokers to quit. It's a, a lot of smokers, isn't it? Uh, considering how expensive they are already, uh, it's uh, 12 something a packet now, nearly 13 euro a packet. 13 is it? euro a packet. Oh, yeah, is it? 12.70. Uh, and right. the, the tobacco industry actually added 30 cents. Okay. Last year to okay. Their so 13 euro a, a packet. And one, one, one in five of us continues to spend 13 euro a packet that's an incredible amount of people and you say 80,000 quit Uh, would you say there's 80,000 vapours um, well, definitely vaping has, has had an, a, a, a role there, but uh, the biggest role uh, um, in the last uh, number of years has been uh, the, 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 the policy that's mm. been pursued by the government. If you go back to the workplace smoking ban, uh, we've, um, we've probably around 400,000 uh, smokers, uh, fewer smokers here now than then. Now, unfortunately, a large percentage of that, about 90,000 uh, of that would be unfortunately people who've died due to smoking related illness but I suppose uh, that's one way of giving them up um, 300,000 yeah. smokers is, is a big achievement so, so, health so in percentage terms uh, what's the prevalence rate gone from about 25% is it? 20? It was 29% 29, and it's gone okay. down yeah, okay, right. Well that's fairly 20. significant isn't yeah. it? It'll continue yeah. to reduce at, at that yeah, rate And, I suppose and the child the right smoking track. rate yeah. is, is, is the most important one because the, the, the tobacco industry needs 50 new smokers every day mm. uh, to, uh, to, 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 to maintain its profits, you know, beyond, uh, you know, uh, people who obviously die and people who manage to get to, to quit. Um, and the, the rate there from uh, 1998, sorry, 1996 to 2016 went down from 43% of 15 to 16 year olds down to 12%. That's huge and we've got to protect that and we've got to en- enhance it further. I, I, I'm sure you're interested in uh, the research uh, that has been published uh, by University College Cork uh, on uh, the link between maternal smoking postnatally and obesity in children aged 3 and 5. 98% uh, of these children are either o- obese or overweight. Um, that's that's right. I actually just uh, saw that in the, on the dart coming in this, this morning. I don't know uh, much more about it. Um, they're suggesting that there's uh, a link that um, that you know um, uh, children being exposed mm. to, to smoke are more prone to obesity. Um, that's the first I've heard of that. Mm. Um, it's interesting. We'll be looking into it. Mm. Um, uh, Sorry, I beg your pardon. It's thirty percent of uh, the children who are obese or overweight. Uh, but uh, yeah. they looked at uh, over eleven thousand children, uh, and ninety-eight uh, percent of uh, the people who were looking after them were their biological mothers. Uh, the remainder being their carers, as uh, such. Uh, but they say that there is uh, this link with being overweight uh, and then there's also the increased risk of type 2 diabetes uh, heart disease cancer uh, as well as lifelong weight well, issues that's what comes with uh, with obesity is you know it's uh, it's it's a tr- track into a life of, of chronic disease and premature death and uh, you know we know uh, from our own um, studies that uh, you know uh, young children uh, are developing high blood pressure at the age of eight and nine and young people are developing the early signs of heart disease that used to only be seen in middle age um, that's uh, the link between that and smoking is new mm. to me certainly uh, but you know there's a huge uh, area 
uh, uh, that also needs to be tackled there for sure. Okay, well we're a couple of months out from uh, the next budget, uh, Chris, uh, in October. Come November, instead of €13 a packet, how much uh, do you expect cigarettes to cost? Well, I suppose what's been happening over the last uh, 10 years, it's, it's every year for the last, since 2010, I think uh, there's been an increase and it's been around 50 cents, uh, that type of thing. Um, what we're saying is if that's ramped up, we can actually do more. Uh, it's interesting as well uh, that uh, uh, Revenue Commissioner's research suggests that further increases now will actually uh, reduce uh, receipts to the exchequer, which is exactly right. what mm. we want because mm. it means fewer people are smoking. Mm. Um, you know, and what we want by 2025 is that nobody uh, will have to, uh, or as few people as possible, will be uh, uh, contributing to the exchequer in this way because uh, nobody or fewer people will be smoking. So that's a good sign. Uh, it's a sign as well. What what the government do decide to put on cigarettes is a sign of whether this really is a health uh, policy or if it's a revenue-raising policy. Um, again, I stress it's really important that we, you know, we do more for smokers. 80% of smokers want to quit, but only we're only spending 11 million euros a year on helping them to do that. It's less than 1% of the additional tax that they're paying. And we're saying that should be up to 50 uh, million a year and should go into, you know, uh, more vigorous ad campaigns and better support services like cessation clinics, quit lines and medications that are proven to, to, to help. Okay, we'll leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Chris Macy, Head of Advocacy with uh, the Irish Heart Foundation. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie McGuire joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Maggie. Well, good morning, Michael. And um, I'm going to start off this morning with taking you back to yesterday's show and response that we had to your piece with Odell Evans from the Irish Country Life magazine about the going back to college oh, yeah. piece. Mm. And Anne was in, in contact with us to say she doesn't know how parents can afford to send their kids to college in this country. Um, she's currently trying to help her daughter find accommodation to prepare for the upcoming uh, college year and the prices that some landlords are seeking are, um, for the most basic of rooms is simply disgusting. Some of the rooms are basically a bed and a bedside locker and they're asking for a couple of hundred euro a week um, uh, per house and that's minus the bills. One room they saw worked out at nearly 1700 a month without the bills included and Anne said that that's nearly double the mortgage that her and her husband mm. pay out each, each month. She said it's no wonder um, so many students decide to go straight into the workplace after they're leaving cert they can't afford to educate themselves any further yeah, in this It's country. an awful lot of money isn't it for anybody to come up with whether you're working or, or otherwise not, yeah. but uh, for a student to come up with that sort of money it really is an awful lot. It's absolutely mm. ridiculous absolutely mm. and we had a lot of reaction to the opening piece on the show today with mm. Connor Faulkner um, in relation to using mobile phones while behind the wheel. Mary said she was driving to Dundalk the other day and lost Oh, I thought she was driving to Dundalk today and on her phone talking to you. No, 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 no. Not so in the case of Mary. She was at home on a landline. No. She's okay, being very responsible. Very okay, yeah. um, she said she lost count of the number of people mm. on their mobiles um, while driving on the motorway. She said it was nearly every second driver. Some of them were using... Now, she did make the point that some of them were using hand-free kits, mm. but others clearly weren't. She said, in fact, one man had his phone wedged between his ear and his shoulder so that he could keep one hand on the wheel while his other hand held a cup of coffee. Right. And all yeah. of this was mm. while doing 100-plus on the motorway. Mm. Absolute mm. madness. Okay. These irresponsible yeah. drivers are, are ticking time bombs for other yeah. motorists, she well, said. You see it all the time, and there's no doubt about it. Well, that's mm. it. Mm. Yeah, you absolutely mm. do. Mm. Um, Tommy says that anyone caught using their phone while driving should lose their licence for 
for a year on the spot. No excuses, no exceptions. Mm. That would soon put a stop to people being so blasé about road safety, he thinks. Okay. And uh, Dave would fully back any move because I know Connor had mentioned mm. about the possibility, or it was either yourself or Connor had mentioned about the possibility of making hands free kits illegal mm. or banning them. Well, uh, they're talking about banning using your phone well, in your car in, in the United any, Kingdom. Yeah. End of story. Hands free or otherwise. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, I'm not sure Connor Falkland is a supporter of that idea. He says uh, that it would be unenforceable. Yeah, it'd be difficult to police. Absolutely. But Dave said he would fully back a move like that here. Um, in his opinion, hands free kits are equally a distraction as physically holding your phone up to your ear basically when you're mm. driving he said distraction is distraction and while behind the wheel you're in charge of what could essentially be a killing machine so you have to take that responsibility seriously and pay due um, care and attention while driving okay hold that thought for a moment Deb. if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist visit juvederm.com that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m Com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Because we're going to go to the phones and the ongoing protest about iPads being used in Rathcote College. Uh, as we heard yesterday, uh, the school board have welcomed uh, the decision of uh, parents uh, to stand down this protest and accept the policy for the time being. They say that they're going to participate in a review of this policy. Angela Kaya is a mother of three children who attend the school, one in fifth year, one in third year and a first year student. Good morning to you, Angela, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, Your statement, uh, as we read from the paper yesterday, uh, said that this was in the best interest of the children. Well, that's it, exactly. We don't have an agenda all we want is, you know, to do the best because they only have one chance at their education and that's why we have spent the, the time and the efforts to try and get the Board of Management to change the policy. 
Okay, and when the children go back in a, a couple of weeks, the school says the only items they'll need to bring with them are a pen and a clear plastic folder for notes. Otherwise, uh, they'll be using their iPads. Well, they'll need manuscripts for writing writing um, notes from pictures off from the iPads. Um, I know my my girl who's gone into fifth year spent a lot of her time homework was writing, transcribing notes uh, from a photo on the iPad into her manuscript. Mm. So they will need manuscript copies. Um, but yeah. Yeah, but and you accept that? Um, well, I mean, my child, my children are going to the school, so they are have they have this dogged approach. I don't agree with it, but at the moment, we have to accept it. We there is a review supposed to be taking place, and as parents, we don't know or haven't been asked to participate in that. We don't know who's doing it, how it's going to be done. Only that the board of management has set the terms of reference, which means um that, I mean, the Board of Management know what they're going to be looking for, but we have had, there's been no communication, we have not been asked, any parents haven't been asked to participate in it, so only that we know the terms of reference for the review are made by the Board of Management, and again, it's been deafening silence. Um, so, you know, it seems to be carrying on, there has been no change, I mean, as Nick Killian said, um, in May, um, in that Board of Management meeting, there was... Uh, they decided that the policy was going to stay in place for the first coming, for for the incoming first years. But I mean, if for example, if there's a car out on the road and there's a default with it, it's not. They're not the people who own cars and said, "Oh, we can drive away. Don't worry about it for a year. We can't change policy for you know as quickly as that." But I mean, the car is pulled in and it's checked. But with this policy of the dogger's approach to the iPads. Oh no, our kids are going to be the guinea pigs. It doesn't matter whether it's right or not. We're just going to go ahead and then we'll think about it. We'll do this review. Do you know what I mean? But as our kids aren't going to get a second chance at their education for, you know, for their junior cert. Mm. So that's, that's where I'm, we're coming from that we're, you know, and then there's a situation with our first years going in. Mm. I have a first year starting and um, we'll have a boy starting in first year and, um, Normally, there is an invitation. Well, we got our letter on 31st May to say we come in um, with, the, with, with our, our first years, like has been the tradition for the last over 10 years. Mm-hmm. And um, we come in, sit in the hall, then the kids get cold um, up to their classes. We have cups of tea. And it's just been, it's just been nice, especially for first-time parents who, you know, who, it's our first child starting um, in secondary education. And it just takes a bit of the, uh, you know, some kids mm-hmm. are anxious, some parents are anxious. And people have made plans, you know, they've organised time off work. And then last Friday, we got an email to say there's been um, a change with regards to um, why things are going to be done next week, that there will not be, parents aren't going to be able to come in and change the arrangements. It's, it's students only who are to meet. Students only. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we feel that is a punishment. I mean, we have, there's been lots of parents have contacted us through emails, again, deafening silence. Okay. We've been given no explanation as to why that the change has been made, but it just seems, again, mm. we've been thrown to the side. And, and then about the confusion, I mean, that letter that, came, that email that came out last week saying about um, it's just, as there still seems to be some confusion regarding the iPad, that is just 
such a disregard for parents. The way, you know, what we've done for the whole summer, we've spent so many hours trying to, you know, get the Board of Management to listen. It really falls down to, you know, falls back to them every time. We have done everything. We've done our petition. We've had 730 um, signatures on a petition, which was presented. We were told we were, um, the, the LME TV um, said to, to put a petition together. We did that. We've done everything that we physically can to try and, you know, change this mm. policy. But as I said about a car, if a car, if it's a default, sure. it's been yeah. with, with uh, like uh, our kids, their health, their eyesight, you know, we, I, could, I could hear for the yeah. day talking. I understand, uh, but you, you, you feel that you've run out of road as such, uh, and you feel that this policy should be assessed and that there should be a proper assessment uh, before it's implemented uh, and that that's not happening and that instead what's happening is being implemented and that that will be reviewed, uh, that it will continue, continue to be implemented. Uh, but uh, I think you heard Nick Killian's interview on the radio yesterday and he, he yes. did say that there would be an opportunity for parents to participate in that review. Well, we will watch the space because we are not going to go away. We want to participate. Yeah. We are reasonable people. You know, but I mean, up to now, there has been no communication there. Well, we're still waiting. I mean, the review is underway, it seems. But again, there hasn't been any communication. We, As I said, we don't know who, where, what. And um, we're still waiting. So certainly, you know, we're not going to go under a rock. And, you know, just because the iPads are still in place, we are going to pursue it. And um, then with regards to the, the school's got a grant of 52000 Per year, each each school uh, from the Department of Education, 52000 per year if they're rolling out the digital um, learning. So that's a lot of money that would help parents. It would, come, it would probably pay for um, 50% of each iPad for each child in our particular school. Um, you know, it's just there's a lot of cost. You know, the Department of Education, as I said, give that over to each school if they have a 1,000 plus um, kids in the school. So there's money involved as well. You know, they do get a grant every year for the digital strategy, strategy being rolled out. Um, but as I said, with regards to the, um, you know, if, if there's default in a car, but like if there's default in a system, but, you know, our, our kids are involved. Yeah, um, it would be recalled, know. yeah. yeah. I, I understand. Uh, but uh, we'll uh, be waiting to hear from you uh, because uh, this review is set to take place uh, and yeah. uh, we heard that parents will be given the opportunity to participate uh, and uh, you know where we are, Angela. If, uh, well, we live in hope. Yeah, uh, we, no, will be, we will be, we'll be keeping, uh, you know, um, yeah. a, a beady eye on it and uh, hopefully we will be able to participate. We're reasonable people okay. and all we want is the best for our kids. All right, we'll come back to us, Angela, if uh, you wish. Uh, nice to talk to you and thank you for joining us here on the programme this morning. That's Angela Kaya who has uh, three children in Rutoth College. Now let's go back uh, to some more of your calls. Uh, you have some more messages for us there, Maggie. Yes, well, going back to the road safety issue, Anne said, um, Michael, not once in your conversation with Conor Falkner did either of you mention that a car being used by a person with a bad temperament is one of the most dangerous things on our roads. Mm. Bad-tempered or bad-mannered drivers are a danger to society and unfortunately they're becoming the majority. Um, and Tom was in contact as well on the same subject and he told me he actually was still shocked when mm-hmm. he was telling me this story but he was saying he was horrified the other day he was driving on the motorway and spotted a couple driving with their young dog or sorry their young Jesus I can't believe I said that their young child and right. a dog okay. unrestrained unrestrained in the back of the car and um, both were moving freely 
about in the back seat and while they seemed relatively well behaved at any point either one of them could have made a bid to climb into the front of the car or done mm. something to distract the driver and Tom says he was it, it was without doubt one of the most irresponsible acts he's ever witnessed in his 30 plus years yeah. of driving Yeah well there's a real child protection issue there and uh, you'd wonder about uh, the capability of uh, those people to parent if uh, they feel that they can allow their children to become a missile Absolutely. in a car uh, and uh, that missile quite often uh, in circumstances like that which are rare uh, yeah. will go through a window alright especially at high speed like that this is it well I'll finish up now and okay. I have more there if you have time to come back to me later ok we'll try to do that thank you indeed Maggie and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us if you'd like to add to what's been said as always we'd love to hear from you our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM, LMFM. 15% of people surveyed in the United Kingdom expect to remain in the EU. 16% think leaving with a deal is the most likely outcome. And 49% of the people who were surveyed in this poll say that they'll be leaving without a deal at all. This is a surveyation poll which was published yesterday and it has found that if there was to be another referendum, the outcome would be completely different and that most people would vote to remain. Some 55% of people would vote to remain and 45% would vote to leave. Let's talk about this with Niall Collins, TD, Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on foreign affairs who's on the line. And a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, they may get a, a chance to vote again. It seems almost certain that they'll get the chance to vote in a, a general election at this stage. Yeah, that absolutely seems to be the case, Michael. Um, I, I think um, there, there will undoubtedly be a general election in the very near future in the UK. We've seen in the last um, number of days that Jeremy Corbyn has upped the ante um, in a big way. He, as you know, has written to all the opposition parties and mm-hmm. indeed to some Conservative Party members in relation to um, a proposal that he has floated to uh, create a, a national or a unity government for a defined period of time with the purpose of calling an election and uh, having a second referendum with the option to remain as part of the question to be put to, to the British people. Same time, so though, there is little prospect of Jeremy Corbyn winning on that basis. It's a, a, an internal uh, combustion, if you like, in the Conservative Party that might bring them down, especially since uh, Philip Hammond making it clear that to leave without a deal would be, in his opinion, a betrayal of what people voted for. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it just goes back to, I, I think, what, what many of us and many commentators said at the time, that the, 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 whole, the whole conduct of the referendum at the time in the United Kingdom was completely dishonest and misinformed. And, you know, when you roll, when you roll the tape forward to the present day, um, I, I think they're, they're obviously, as we know, in a complete state of flux. But th- there isn't a majority for anything in, in Westminster at the moment, uh, save uh, exiting without a, without, um, without a deal. And for that to succeed... Um, parties, people would have to cross party lines, and that seems to be highly unlikely. The proposal which was floated by Jeremy Corbyn has been rejected by the Liberal Democrats, Mm. who are uh, the next largest bloc uh, to the Labour Party in opposition. So that obviously, um, you know, pales 
uh, that proposal into into the distance for the time being. But, but I think any which way uh, we're, we're looking at a general election yeah. and I think what will come out of that who knows at this point in time. Well, I mean, this is the point. Uh, if uh, Boris has a working majority of one and he loses Philip Hammond, undoubtedly he'll lose others with him uh, and uh, that will force his hand, will it not? Absolutely, it will force his hand. You, you see, they're, they're in, as we know, they're in a complete state of paralysis. Uh, they have a confidence and supply um, arrangement with the DUP. Mm. Um, you know, and a lot of the DUP are in a very... Um, they're in a very awkward situation in the sense that a lot of their traditional supporters are people who are being uh, or who will potentially be um, hugely adversely impacted uh, by the onset of a no-deal hard Brexit um, in Northern Ireland with the, with the emergence of a border and a hard border and all the, the issues that that will bring and challenges that that will bring in terms of trade and logistics and, and transport of products, particularly given that uh, Northern Ireland is such a, an SME-based uh, economy in terms of uh, food production, supply chains, uh, logistics, and all the all the traffic flows over and back across the border to mm. the UK and, and through the land bridge. Yeah, uh, perhaps uh, it, it won't force Boris Johnson's hand at all. Perhaps it's exactly what he, he wants uh, because it would seem as though he's been gearing up for an election ever since taking office, and that his. Um, purpose is to bring about a, a Brexit and he would seem to be uh, of the opinion that that can be done uh, but he, I'm sure he knows that that must include a backstop uh, which he cannot deliver so long as he's relying on the support of the DUP so perhaps he's hoping to go into an election and sell the DUP out um, Maybe so but at the same time his rhetoric uh, is appealing to his own hardline base and you've got to remember this, and, and this, I suppose, is one of the intricacies of politics that, that um, uh, some people don't factor in to, to, to their thinking here in Ireland. The system in the UK is a single-seat, uh, first-past-the-post um, constituency. So if, you know, it, it's still quite possible that despite um, a dwindling um, support for Brexit and a dwindling support for a hard Brexit, that Boris Johnson... Uh, you know, given his rhetoric across other uh, issues uh, outside of his hardline and Brexit in relation to crime, law and order, funding of the NHS, that that may resonate with people and that he may uh, get some kind of an, a bounce in a general election mm. which would deliver him uh, some kind of a, a working majority because, um, you know, the system, the proportional, we have a multi-seat proportional representational system here in our country, as we know, uh, but, but over in the UK, it's first past the post, um, you know, so if, you know, a lot of constituencies uh, that might resonate uh, with the Boris Johnson message for a whole pile of different reasons may ultimately end up electing a Conservative uh, MP in those areas and mm. give him the numbers that he requires. Yeah, but if he got a majority without the need of uh, the support of uh, the DUP, uh, it's most likely that he would go ahead with the withdrawal deal with a backstop for Northern Ireland, is it not? Uh, it's possible. Look, I mean, <laughs> Boris Johnson asking me to, 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 to read Boris Johnson's mind from, from this remove, I, mm. I'm just not particularly able to do it. I don't think anybody can do it. All we can, all we can take him at the moment is on face value. And he's been talking really tough at the moment in terms of that they are intending on leaving on the 31st of October, um, that if it has to be a no deal, it will be a no deal. So I suppose... A lot of our focus also, Michael, as you know, will be 
um, pressurising and ensuring that what we can do within our control to have ourselves prepared and our readiness uh, for uh, this Armageddon, if it does arrive, we're, we're, we're all blue in the face from saying mm. there's no upside to Brexit. But, um, you know, our job as opposition has to be to continue to point out to the government that our preparedness and our readiness for the onset of a hard Brexit, Brexit uh, should be far, far uh, better than it is at the moment. Mm. You, you see the most recent um, sentiment uh, survey published by the Department of Business and Innovation under Heather Humphrey's jurisdiction, where at least 50% of the SMEs have uh, no Brexit preparedness plan. Uh, they haven't looked at it seriously at all. So, you know, survey after survey, whether it's our banks, the AIB, whether it's the Institute of Chartered Accountants, whether it's ISME themselves, um, show that uh, business isn't prepared. The registrations of Irish businesses uh, who do um, trade with the UK uh, through the revenue, through the Irish and the UK revenue, that registration that's required, only a third of our businesses are reg- have, have their registrations up to date. So a lot has to be done uh, to have ourselves at that, at that state mm. of preparedness which we need uh, to face a hard Brexit if it, if it arrives. Hopefully it won't, but if, if it arrives, and it may arrive. Are you surprised that Mr Johnson hasn't met with uh, Taoiseach yet? I am. I am. I, I, I think um, as our nearest neighbour, um, I, I think really, I, I think Boris Johnson... Uh, should uh, take the the earliest opportunity. Uh, he he continually cites the backstop. Uh, the backstop is obviously is centred around uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland and the border. And I think um, you know he has mm. such a huge uh, ideological uh, objection you... to the backstop. I think the fact that he hasn't mm. uh, made uh, a visit or indeed that one of his first ports of call uh, to meet in person the Irish. Uh, t-shirt I think um, I'm disappointed by that yeah would you describe it as a snub well look I mean I don't want to say anything that's going to um, you know have a negative impact I, I think we need cool heads um, parliament both parliaments are in recess I suppose there's a lot of moving parts going on out there during the during the summertime mm. but, but I would I, I both, would both say, men are working I absolutely mean, they are yeah. and I think um, Boris was on I, Facebook the other day yeah, and he's on Twitter. I, I, yeah. I'm on Twitter this morning, mm-hmm. uh, reiterating his message in relation to leaving on the 31st mm-hmm. of, of October. Mm-hmm. Um, he, reminds, he reminds me a lot of Donald Trump in terms of uh, his Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, his Twitter activity. Yeah, he sends a lot of uh, he sends a lot of short, blunt messages out via Twitter. But I do think um, I think the point that you make is correct, and I think it's something that certainly I would like to see happening. Uh, very soon and much sooner rather than later. Uh, just while you're with us uh, on the subject of Donald Trump uh, and uh, somewhat related to that, his uh, support uh, for Israel and Israel's decision to bar two Democratic Congresswomen from visiting the country saying that they hate Israel and all Jewish people. What do you make of that as both Fina Falls Foreign Affairs spokesperson and somebody who's been accused by the ambassador here of being anti-Semitic. Well, the, the, the ambassador didn't accuse me of being anti-Semitic. He, he said that uh, some rhetoric that I engaged in was anti-Semitic. And um, uh, look, I mean, I, I made a remark where I referred to a Jewish lobby across corporate America. I, I'm advised that had I referred to a pro-Israel lobby across corporate America, uh, that, it, that that wouldn't have been perceived as an insult to the Jewish community. And I didn't certainly didn't um, set out to insult uh, the Jewish community or anybody. But the point that you're raising, mm. uh, I find it quite disturbing 
that um, two democratically elected uh, congresswomen uh, from the United States are being denied entry into Israel and uh, the West Bank. I, I think really in a modern society, uh, if we're to have modern, open, transparent democracies, um, that this should not be happening. I would call on uh, the authorities in Israel to reverse that decision. I, I think it's counterproductive. I think it sends out all the wrong messages. Uh, we see so many countries around the world where uh, freedom of speech, uh, where people, where, where there's a narrowing of the, the, the public space, where people uh, can engage in freedom of speech and argument and discourse in relation to, to politics and policies. And, you know, this sends out all the wrong messages. And I think, uh, certainly, I think it's disturbing that when Donald Trump can tweet uh, a message in relation to these two congresswomen, that the, that the government of Israel uh, then uh, acts uh, based on, uh, on the face of it, based on a tweet from Donald Trump. I, I think that's very disturbing. It's a strange world. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed uh, Thank you very for much. joining us here on the programme this morning. Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on Foreign Affairs, Niall Collins, TD. Michael Reed on LMFM. Sometimes you need uh, to prove who you are and you need to, to prove your identity if you're going to claim social welfare. But is that a reason to create a requirement to prove identity if uh, that requirement doesn't exist. It's a question that's been asked about the public services card. The department has to be sure that you are Mike Reed and that, number one, that you can prove that you're Mike Reed, but number two, that you're not already claiming something else in some other manner, you know, in uh, on another scheme. So the SAFE2 authentication process was first moved in 2002. It was introduced in 2011. Mm. Um, and it's working. I mean, I don't think there's a week that goes by that you're not seeing in the national papers somebody who's been, you know, discovered claiming more than one social welfare payment that they're not entitled to, obviously. And okay. the SAFE2 authentication process allows us to go through that to make sure mm. that you're only claiming one and that you are who you say you are. Right. That's the Minister for Social Protection telling me why I'd need a public services card if I was uh, to claim social welfare. But uh, the Data Protection Minister has said that that doesn't mean you should force people to obtain such a card for services other than those provided by the Department of Social Protection. In fact, it is unlawful from a data protection viewpoint to do so. And the state is now being told it must delete data it is holding on some 3.2 million people, which has been gathered as a part of the rollout of the public services card. Let's talk about this with Duran Ainsborough, Senior Research and Policy Officer with the ICCL. Good morning, Duran, and thanks for joining us. The Council for Civil Liberties has long campaigned against this card. What do you make of this decision from the Data Protection Commissioner? Good morning, Michael. Thanks for having us on this morning. Um, yeah, the ICCL uh, very much welcomes the um, Data Protection Commissioner's findings this morning that there's no legal basis for demanding the public service card for, for many of the public services um, for which it, it, we have been told it is mandatory. We've had people ringing us up telling us they can't get passports because they, they have, have refused to essentially trade their, their own personal information for, for, such, um, for such a service. Um, and we've been we've been long kind of highlighting the the privacy concerns about having to you know give up your your personal data 
in 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 terms uh, where we're not really quite sure what's what what's being done with it or how it's being um, managed or processed, um, how long it, how long the department the government is keeping it for, mm. and um, and also you know um, how uh, the the extent to which which services are it is actually necessary for and not. So yeah. what, the, what the what the data protection commissioner has said is that outside of welfare payments. Um, the requirement of a public service card is actually illegal. There's no basis for it in law. Um, it's not being um, kept uh, in, in, a, in a way that's actually necessary. Um, and people actually haven't been given the information they are entitled to about what, 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 they're, what is being done with their own personal information. You used two words there that I'd like to focus on, necessary and mm. mandatory. Uh, necessary might be a, a more uh, appropriate word or easier for some of us to understand uh, because Minister Doherty, who we heard from a moment ago, said it was mandatory but not compulsory. And that left an awful lot of people scratching their heads. Well, it left us scratching our heads as well. I mean, our understanding of those two words is that they mean the same thing. And to be honest, that 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 uh, that remark has has been the source of a, a lot of humour. Um, I think you know what, what it really shows is that that the the minister, the government itself, really didn't have a very clear idea about about what services it was requiring the PSE for, or, or even like what the PSE was for beyond social welfare payments. And and what really what we saw was was this kind of mission creep where because because suddenly there was this possibility of an ID card, they they um, they started rolling it out without the proper basis in law. Um, yeah, and why were they? Why 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 were they doing it? Well, very interestingly, in the uh, I think it's important for listeners to understand we haven't got the full report from mm. the Data Protection Commissioner mm. yet, and they've actually the, the Department of Social Protection has to actually. Um, uh, say that, that that it's possible to to, to publish that report, and and the the data protection commissioner has asked mm. them to do it within seven days. But the so Council of Civil, Civil Liberties has been arguing for some time that this is a, a way of introducing a national identity card uh, through the back door. That's right. Um, we we have been arguing that, and you know I I think it's very interesting that um, only about ten years ago the, the the UK government had had suggested bringing in a national identity card in the UK, and there was a huge national debate where people were given the chance to actually discuss whether or not they wanted an ID card and whether it was necessary in their country. And the people the people said no, and they had to the government had to stop plans for a national ID card in the UK. Okay. And in Ireland, we haven't been given that opportunity to actually have a debate. They just started rolling it out in a very kind of, we, we would say, in a very kind of underhand manner because they were, first of all, demanding um, personal information in exchange for services, which we don't think is actually fair. And second of all, um, using, once this card is introduced, using it to, to sort of um, demand information for other services, which, which, which they couldn't even justify. You know, right. I mean, why, why do you, why is the ID... Um, why is why is kind of your ID good enough to get a PSE, but not good enough to get a passport? You well, know? the question and, is: Is yeah. it a national identity card? And it's an issue that has been raised by the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Liam Herrick of uh, the ICCL made to this point a, a couple of years ago, and I asked Minister Doherty to respond to it. She said he was wrong. He, he makes the assertion that there is no legislation that backs up this particular um, authentication process, and he's clearly wrong. I don't know if the minister is wrong or if this report will say she's wrong. What do you think? 
Well, I mean, what the report has said is that there there is a, a legal basis within um, sort of the so- Social Welfare Act, but mm. which has had a lot of, but it's very unclear um, because it, it's been annotated so often. It's very difficult for anyone to actually read that mm. who doesn't have, you know, a law degree, um, which is which also raises questions about the right to information. But what the what this report has said is that there is no legal basis for rolling out this card beyond any services that the, so- the Department of Social protection. Yeah, and the Minister was making the point uh, that it came under the legislation that went before the Dáil and was voted on and enacted by the Oireachtas, but this report seems to be saying that what they have done with the card diverges from the legislation that underpins it. Uh, Just hear another few seconds of what the Minister said about why she thought the Irish Council for Civil Liberties was wrong. Uh, and she clearly said you were wrong uh, when you thought that this was a national identity card. What I'm absolutely sure of, though, Michael, is, is that it's not an identity card, not by the back door or the side door. And no prospect of it becoming a, a national identity card. Uh, the minister has uh, some uh, serious questions to answer here, doesn't she? I, I think she absolutely does. I mean, it's. I mean, you can you can you know you can call a spade by another name, but it's still a spade. You know, I mean, if you're if you're being told you have to apply for and uh, and get a card with all your identity details in order to um, access state services, I mean, that's that's an identity card. I mean, it's it's uh, it's clear to us that it is an identity card. Now, I mean, the idea that it's not being required for every single person living in the state only for people living in the state who want to access state services mm. maybe that maybe she thinks a distinction can be drawn along those lines but our view would be you know why would you discriminate against people who need to access um state services yeah, and, and, and and impose this kind of id card on them and and essentially demand their personal information in in uh, in exchange for for services well know? regina doherty has gone to ground today she's not making any comments she wants to reflect on the report uh, from uh, the data protection commissioner and undoubtedly she make a comment in time but she did have plenty to say about this card and how it was not a national identity card one of the reasons she said it wasn't a national identity card was because not everybody in the state would need one uh, she was arguing that uh, it wouldn't be necessary for anybody under 18 to have one so that made it something other than a national identity card uh, and here, here's some more of the reasons why she felt uh, the council for civil liberties were wrong the legislation was amended in 2012 under a nif- a, a number of different sections of the Act that gives grounds, obviously, for moving us from what was Safe 1 uh, authentication to Safe 2 and all of the public bodies that we can share the information. Like, it's clearly in the Act and was passed by the Oireachtas. Clearly in the Act, she says, uh, but not according to the Data Protection Commissioner because they've tried to use it for services outside of social protection. So the Minister was clearly wrong uh, because the Data Protection Commissioner is saying it's diverging from the legislation that the Minister is talking about there. Is that correct, Erin? Yes, that's exactly what we what we would say as well. Um, it's it's very clear, and and not only have they said it's illegal, but the data protection commissioner has said um, that they that the government must stop rolling it out, mm. um, and and in fact must delete um, information that it does have. So we are, um, you know, we we feel that uh, our campaign against the PSC has, has been vindicated. Um, although we do retain some some further um, concerns 
including the fact that um, we, we consider the, the, the gathering of, of a, a JPEG facial image as biometric information, which should be sh- subject to um, extreme uh, privacy safeguards, and yeah. we're not convinced that those safeguards are in place. So we're, we, we very much welcome the, the, the report today, and mm. we, we look forward to the publication of the full report. Um, and, uh, but we, we, we actually um, have further concerns. And when they delete it all, uh, we'll be asking how much did it cost. Uh, and, then we, and then we might be asking... How much is it going to cost? Well, that's exactly it. Um, so, Michael, there's gra- there's grounds for the state to be sued here, isn't there? Well, that's that's another question. <laughs> I, I, I I I'm not sure I I would uh, I would be in a position to answer that right now. But um, certainly, on, upon reading the full report, we we could get back to you on that one. Um, but I do think there is a figure your listeners will be interested in hearing, which is that um, it has cost sixty million euro to roll out this this card and uh, from the uh, statistics from the social department of social protection itself we've heard that only 2.5 million has been saved in terms of welfare fraud so there's got there's a lot of questions around cost as well okay we'll hear more political reaction or some political reaction more to the point uh, in a moment Uh, in time undoubtedly we'll hear from minister regina doherty as i say Uh, she's not making any comment uh, for the moment it seems but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning that's uh, Duran ainsborough senior research and policy officer with the irish council for civil liberties Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've heard, Regina Doherty has gone to ground and understandably so because uh, the public services card the Minister has introduced is illegal according to the Data Protection Commissioner and I suppose she'd want some time to reflect on all of that. As you've also been hearing, uh, this has been welcomed by the Irish Council for Civil Liberties who's been saying as much for a couple of years and uh, their view is in line with uh, the United Nations Special Rapporteur and indeed with Digital Rights Ireland. A couple of years ago its director Simon McGar was in front of the Oireachtas Committee uh, on uh, public uh, on social protection and he was suggesting at the time that the card might have been in breach of EU law. This is what Regina Doherty had to say about that. And he obviously has some major concerns but it doesn't make his assertions if that's the right word to use, correct. Um, if there was an issue with the European courts, somebody would have taken us to task. The European courts would have contacted us. Um, I think he might feel, um, or maybe trying to misconstrue the fact that if it was a national identity card um, and we had have introduced it in the manner that we've introduced it, there may have been questions to ask. And that may not be correct. Uh, Neve Smith is uh, Fianna Fáil TD in Cavan Monaghan. Uh, do you believe uh, the minister may end up eating humble pie here on this one? Well, it certainly is uh, uh, another mess for the government, I'm afraid, this morning, Michael, and thanks for having me on on it. Uh, first, just to welcome the Data Protection Commissioner's findings. It is something that we kind of see on a daily basis, to be honest. I would be holding clinics in some of your own area there, Drum Conrad, Kimmain and Mudd, because need comes into the constituency of Calvin Monaghan now. Mm. And um, definitely, particularly older people have had concerns about this, I have found. Um, there's been sort of, I suppose, carrots dangled in front of people's faces in relation to encouraging them to, to get this public services card, such as free uh, travel. Um, but when it comes to applying for passports, for yeah. licences, and of course, you know, the education, some of the educational grants require it too. I do believe that it has been a sort of a backdoor into sharing uh, of information. And I actually would believe that it's sort of tying down and nailing down protection of our, our, our information and our own personal data we should be doing rather than exposing it more. Right. Uh, the minister said those concerns are benign. We produced a booklet 
Um, we've, we've got it on the website. Like, what I want to do is, is that if somebody has a concern, they raise it with me or the department that we address that concern. But in the end, to be honest with you, like, I know there are people, mm. um, such as the people that you've mentioned, have raised concerns publicly. I think those concerns are benign. Um, but my job is to make sure that anybody who has a concern gets that concern addressed. And that's what we'll continue to do. So. All right. That's Minister Regina Doherty then. Uh, she's not here today to address those concerns. Should she be out talking about this, do you think, Neve Smith? Well, the, the, in fairness, the report was, was uh, published last night, so I think we all need time to actually see it, and I would encourage the Minister and the Government to most certainly publish those findings, the full finding to us within the seven days. But I think the fact that the Commissioner has insisted that the, that the data of three million people be mm. deleted immediately demonstrates the ga- gravity of the Government's mistake on this issue. She and has to publish it, doesn't it? Or, or else she'll be uh, in front of a, a judge or her officials will be uh, defending the case against uh, the Data Protection Commissioner who will force well, it. I think that the, the government certainly wouldn't be doing themselves any favour to be withholding information like that because we know the Data Commissioner has said, you know, delete the information of mm. 3 million people. You're contravening data protection law yeah. by withholding indefinitely citizens' information. It's also the, an issue around compliance of, of um, transparency. And it's and illegal. It's it's illegal, illegal. Of course it's and, illegal. and it's breached people's rights. So, uh, as I asked the Council for Civil Liberties a, a moment ago, there's the cost of it so far and the potential cost uh, because the state could be sued over this, could Absolutely. it Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's a staggering figure we heard in your show there this morning that, that it has cost £60 million to roll this out with £2.5 million being saved. Everybody is on for and in favour of um, ensuring that there is no social protection fraud. However, a cost of 60 million in terms of the cost to roll this out in the first place, that certainly uh, won't stack up. I think it's been irresponsible of the government to push this, insist on this, and persist mm. with the rolling out because there's been lots of opposition, not only and fair play to the Council of Civil, Civil Liberties, but also to TDs across the Oireachtas and all parties and, and people, I, I suppose, on the ground coming to our constituency offices feel very uncomfortable mm. about sharing their personal data. And it would seem, with, and it would seem, with contempt for yeah, those for, for for those concerns that people had, all, albeit in a, a reasonable, rational sounding way, but contempt nonetheless. Those concerns were dismissed out of hand. And one final clip, if I can, please, Neve, from mm-hmm. the Minister Regina Doherty, who's not available to us today. But two years ago, I asked her, "Is there a possibility that the state could end up being sued as a result of this?" I don't know, because as far as I'm concerned, we haven't done anything um, of the likes of what Mr. McGar um, or Mr. Hemrick suggested last week. Um, we need to make sure that the taxpayer's money is spent in the right way. And if you are who you say, are you not to worry about it? Right, and that's uh, Regina already saying, no, State did nothing wrong, we won't be sued, uh, referring to the concerns of the Irish Council of Civil Liberties and D- Digital Rights Ireland. Uh, let's hope she's right, I suppose, Neve Smith. Well, I think you'll find that, um, unfortunately for the Minister and the Government, they're not right and the Data Protection Commissioner's findings, I have no doubt, will insist and show and demonstrate in a very clear way that they made a massive, massive mistake here. And the fact that, you know, we're always talking about information and protecting our information. We see with social media particularly how that can undermine a person's complete identity. And that's what Mm. this is all about. This is why people have felt so uncomfortable about this for so, so long. Can she continue as Minister? Well, that's not for me to decide. I mean, that would be for the Taoiseach to decide whether she can or not. I mean, essentially, we have to see the report, read the report, 
And I think the government would make a further mistake of this shambles if they didn't put their hands up and say, we've made a mistake, delete the information of the three million people that they shouldn't have and shouldn't be circulating between other departments. But if it's as big a mistake, as big a botched job as you've indicated you believe it to be, uh, do you think that there's any prospect of anybody having confidence in somebody like that who oversaw that to continue as minister? Well, we are in the business of holding people accountable, Michael, as you know, and that would be our first job, is to hold the minister and her officials to account, and I think this is something that will take time to actually investigate and to, I suppose, tease out the information, and it will take more than just a minister coming into the doll in September, it will take, I'm sure, a number of Iraqis committee meetings to see what information, I mean, this is a government that has the full resources of the legal team, the Attorney General, we need to know what information did they get, did they ignore the information that they get, and of course, who is accountable but for spending 60 million rolling out something that was illegal. All right, we have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Neve Smith, uh, Fianna Fáil TD in Cavan. Monaghan brings our programme to its conclusion today and this week with uh, thanks to Maggie McGuire and Chris Murray. Orla Carmody will be here on Monday and God willing, we'll see you then for our next programme and I hope you have a lovely weekend. Good morning and goodbye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.